Our sermon today is called A Gospel Greeting. We will focus on the greeting of the letter of Jude, the first couple verses, but uh, we will read right now all 25 verses. Hear God's word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may peace, may mercy, Peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own positions, position of authority, but left their pr- proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understood instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up from casting up the foam of their own shame wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever it was also about these that enoch the seventh from adam prophesied saying behold the lord comes with 10000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and out of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy without fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I've heard it said many times that if you go to a counselor, which I have done many times, often if you are being counseled, you'll wait for the very end when there are two minutes left to share what you really need to share. You sit down with somebody and you want to talk to them and, and uh, you're, you're too afraid to come right out and tell them what you want to talk about. So you wait until it's almost time to go and then you tell them. And then there are other people who greet people with an O-H. There it is. (laughs) When I first moved here, I had no clue what they were saying or how to respond. But when you hear that greeting, you know exactly what this conversation is about. They don't even have to say hello. You know this is a conversation about a shared passion and football. Jude is more like the latter. He gets right to the point. In his greeting today, we don't have to wonder what's this going to be about. He jumps right in and tells you off the bat what this book is about. This is a gospel greeting that opens a letter about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jude tells us in verses 3 and 4 exactly why he has written this letter. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude is writing to confront false teachings and cultural tides and licentiousness and greediness, which not only distract from, but conflict with the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this world to whom Jude is writing, the message of Jesus Christ is not the popular opinion. So he charges them to stand firm. How relevant then to us is this message and this reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we must stand firm in this gospel. But even before verses 3 and 4, Jude spends verses 1 and 2 explaining the glorious truths of the gospel. And that's where we will focus today. It was normal for a first century letter to start with the name of the sender, followed by the name of the recipients, followed by a brief greeting, and then they move into a health wish or a prayer, and then the body of the letter, and then the conclusion. Today, we're focusing in on that introduction. We'll see the sender, and then we'll see the recipients, and we'll see the greeting that he gives. So let's look at the sender. And here, as we look at the sender, Jude, we're looking at Jude's relationship to Christ in verse 1. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. It's important to note that his first and foremost identity is as a servant of Christ. His name is Jude. The name Jude is the same word as Judas or Judah, and there are five others in the New Testament, or there are a total of five in the New Testament. 
And as he describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, we're able to start to eliminate who the other potential Judases might be. He calls himself a servant of Christ, so we know he's not Judas Iscariot. And we know he's not the infamous revolutionary from Galilee. He calls himself the brother of James, so we know he's not the disciple Judas. And we know he's not Judas, who is also called Barsabbas. Therefore, we can confidently identify him as the Jude of Mark chapter 6, that is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, the son of Mary and Joseph, the brother of James. But what Jude's doing is more than just identifying himself in a crowd of Judes. He's telling us deep things about who he is in Jesus. So we'll spend a moment looking at the phrase servant of Christ, and then we'll look at brother of James. When Jude says he is a servant of Christ, this is not like the word deacon. This is like the word slave. He says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, it was a title of honor to call somebody a slave of God. Tell me if these were honored figures or not. These men were called slaves of God. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David. It's a title of honor. Because the alternative to being a slave of God would be to be a disobedient one. And there is not honor in disobeying Yahweh. In the New Testament, slave of God was also used, but specifically slave of Jesus Christ. And so the turning of that title from slave of God to slave of Jesus Christ was conveying that Jesus Christ and God are both deity. Not two separate gods, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So the slave of Jesus Christ was used to describe Paul and James and Peter and others. Paul also makes clear that if you're not a slave to Jesus, if you're not a slave to God, you must still be a slave to sin. So to identify yourself as a slave of Jesus is to say, I'm no longer a slave of sin. I have one master, and it is Jesus Christ. Paul, James, Peter, Jude, they share a commitment to Christ, a life of service to him. This keeps them humble as they lead the church. They're not the heads. They're not the CEOs. They're not the ones with power in this new movement because only Jesus is the head. Oh, for us to be humble servants of Jesus, to say he must increase and I must decrease. In our PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, Book of Church Order, it's a mouthful, I understand, the first line in the preface says, the king and head of the church is Jesus Christ. The king and head of the church is Jesus Christ alone. All of us then are slaves under him. Now, we don't like the term slave. Indeed, it has terrible connotations. But also we don't like it because we are obsessed with autonomy and because we don't want to be told what to do and because we forget how good our master is. Listen to the benefits of being a slave to God. First of all, it reminds you you're no longer a slave to sin. Second of all, Paul talks about being a slave to God as the alternative to being a slave of sin, and then takes that idea of being a slave of God and says, really, when you fully understand that, that means you're a child of God. He says in Romans 8, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you are a slave of God. You have received that spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, 
Father. Now, the, the ancient Greeks, like us, had no positive use for the word slave. They thought it was terrible. Plato, Aristotle, no, no positive use except for one. It was okay to be a slave to the law. And the reason it was okay to be a slave to the law is because the law was the ideal for humanity. It was supposed to set up what is the ultimate good for humans. So if you called yourself a slave to the law, you then were a participant in bettering humanity. How much more for you and for me when we're not slave to some humanistic law, but we are slave to the loving laws of our God, his beautiful precepts, which are sweeter than honey, more precious than much Fine gold to be slave to God and his designs, his designs that he gives for his covenant people is good for us, but in an eternally significant way. And as we are slaves to Christ, we realize his burden is not heavy. He says, come and I'll give you rest. He gives us mercy and grace in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jude is a servant of Christ. He's also the brother of James. Seems like a pretty casual way to refer to a James. Also a pretty common name. But we find out there really was only one James in those days that was popular enough to be referred to as simply James. And it was Jude's brother. It was the James who was also the half-brother of Jesus. He became a head in the early church. You can read about him in the book of Acts. He possessed a powerful testimony of God's grace working in his life. So did Jude both of them rejecting their brother Jesus until they saw the resurrected Christ. So we have to ask, why didn't Jude just come out and say he's the brother of Jesus? It's because Jude realizes there's actually no benefit in being the blood brother of Jesus without faith. There is no benefit in bragging about your connection to Jesus as his half-brother if you don't serve him and trust him. Because all of Jesus' benefits come for those who have faith, comes through faith. So let's, let's take a look at that. Jude's perspective on his relationship to Jesus Christ is that he knew having a blood connection doesn't get him a different type of salvation than the rest of us. He doesn't get an automatic pass into heaven or a seat of honor when he gets there. He can't get to the gates of heaven and offer his blood kinship instead of his faith in order to be admitted into heaven. In fact, does any earthly connection to Jesus, heritage, Jewish descendants, any nationality, any specific church affiliation or association, do any of those earthly associations yield true benefit? No. In fact, the ones closest to Jesus were the ones who called him crazy. They're the ones who said he's out of his mind. So if I told you, that I'm related to somebody famous, let's say Johnny Cash, what benefit would that give me? What if I don't listen to his music? What if I know nothing of his story? You might know Johnny Cash better than I do. My connection to him means nothing. Of course, Johnny Cash is a weak comparison to our Savior. Jude has the proper perspective as he looks at who Jesus is. He knows that the most important relationship to Christ, both for eternity and for today is as servant of Jesus Christ. There is no better relationship to our Savior. This is a position of faith, 
position that trusts Jesus. It receives his free offer of grace. And it is a position where one dies to self and loves Christ with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. Oh, that is so much better than to have the title of half-brother of Jesus, which yields no benefit. So you and me, are we proud of our Christ Prez stickers or our Christian title that we wear so that we might look better? Yet, do we lack a true relationship with our Savior? Jesus is not to be a badge that makes us feel better about ourselves. He is one to whom we bow. He's our master. That's Jude's position before his Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one writing this letter. He's already filling his letter with truth about the gospel. And now he tells us who he's writing to. So let's look at the recipients. The recipients of Jude's letter share a similar relationship to Christ. He says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Historically and geographically, there's not a whole lot of certainty as to who specifically these, this, uh, this letter went to. But if we know a few things. They were probably a mix of Jews and Gentiles. They were facing pre-Gnostic ideologies and false teachings. Probably in the mid-first century, 50s to 60s A.D., What's most important about these people is that they are called, beloved, and kept. These people to whom Jude writes are called. This is not the general gospel call, which we do believe is a powerful tool that the Spirit uses to convert sinners. The gospel call is where the message is proclaimed and one is told to put your faith in Jesus. That is the call of the gospel, but that's not what's going on here. It's also not some wishful invitation from a powerless God who hopes that people might come. It's not God sitting there saying, oh, would you please come put your faith in me? Like me when I was a young boy, walking around our property, calling to our dog who we had lost. But he could not come because he was dead. I know that's a blunt, stunning imagery, but that's who we are before the Spirit awakens us. No, this is a call that is based entirely on the sovereignty of God. This is the effectual, heart-changing, life-giving call of our sovereign God. This is what Paul means when he talks in Romans 1 of those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ and called to be saints. This effectual call, as our catechism tells us, It is the work of God's almighty power and grace where he draws them to Jesus Christ by his word and spirit. From his free and special love for his people and from nothing in his people. In this, he savingly enlightens their minds, renews their wills, and are made able to freely answer his call and accept the grace offered in Jesus. Like the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. Jude is writing to those who have been effectually called and made able to understand the power of God and the wisdom of God that the world calls foolishness. These people are called powerfully. These people are also beloved in God the Father. Now, I've actually never heard this taught 
but I have heard it set up as a straw man against evangelical Christians. And the argument goes like this. God is a God of wrath, and Jesus saves you from God's wrath. Jesus is love, the Father is wrath, and Jesus intervenes to save you from God. I've never actually heard that taught. It is true that our God is a God of wrath and that our sins are, must receive the penalty for their error and God's wrath is poured out against the ungodly. But it's not as if God our Father does not love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You'll know in Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this love that God has for you is not fleeting. It's not a whim. This is an eternal love of God. In Jeremiah 31, 3, God is explaining the new covenant with his people. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. To be beloved in God the Father is to be loved eternally by this God, this God who chose you in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined you before time began, predestined you for adoption. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus and God are not working different differently. They're not working against each other in redemption. We can see how much God loves us when we see how much Christ loves us and has done for us. Dane Ortland, many of you have read his books. He describes Jesus with some very helpful characteristics. He says Jesus is ruling. Jesus is saving. Jesus is befriending. And he is persevering, and he is interceding, and he is returning, and he is tender. This is our God, and sometimes we miss these elements of who he is, these these characteristics that are unchanging. Our God loves us so much that he has made his gentleness and lowliness accessible to us. When you feel unlovable, you are loved by the merciful God. When only you know your ugliness and your repulsiveness, our God is drawn to your need and your emptiness. Now, I must say this love is reserved for those who have faith in Jesus. This is a saving love. This is a love that is known only by those who receive it in faith. God's love is the foundation for any salvation and any hope. To Jude's hearers, you you see, we're going to get into these in coming sermons. You see the conflicts they're up against these false teachers. You see these perversions that they're facing, yet in the midst of all these things going on, Jude's reminding them, you are called and beloved. That's your anchor in an antagonistic world. I'm not quite sure that I understand the depth of what it means to be loved by God. I think that is an unplumbable depth. In fact, it's been something I've struggled with, yet God has shown me more and more what it means that he loves me, that he loves his children. Do you, Christian, think of yourself the way God does, beloved in God the Father for all eternity? Those whom have been called and those whom God loves 
will be kept for Jesus Christ. And that's the next thing Jude says as he addresses his hearers, you are kept for Jesus Christ. This one emphasizes for us the patience of God. And who better to speak to God's patience and being kept for him than Jude, who lived his life in the same house as Jesus, yet rejected him, who heard his teachings and called him crazy. His doubts, his difficulties, his disbelief, yet he was kept for Jesus Christ, his Savior, by God's patience. Despite decades of resistance, the risen Christ prevailed. And what are Christians kept for Jesus Christ for? Well, we are kept from something and we are kept for something. We are kept from stumbling, as you see at the end of the book of Jude in verse 24. And then in verse 4, we're told that we are kept from the ungodly perversions of the world. Jesus teaches us to pray that we might be kept from temptation. That we might be those who stand strong in a world that is not friendly to the gospel. In temptations, trials, and onslaughts from Satan, God promises to watch over us at every moment, keeping us safe for Christ's sake, as one commentator puts it. We are kept from the temptations and the trials of this world, but we are kept for the presence of his glory, as verse 24 in Jude also reminds us. And we are kept for eternal life, as verse 21 says. Jude is going to circle back to this theme of being kept many times in this letter. And it means, as the same commentator says, he says, it means that God throughout this life exercises his power on behalf of Christians to preserve them spiritually intact until the coming of Jesus Christ in glory. He is going to preserve us and carry us to completion. Jesus on this earth came to save his people. He was working salvation for his people. He said something staggering, and it's a saying that applies not only to the substitutionary atonement that happened 2,000 years ago, but to the completion of your salvation. He said, when Jesus knew that his hour had come in John 13... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end of his life up to to death until he raised a new life and he will bring you to that same completion and his love will never end. Does this mean that we just become spiritually lazy? I'm good. God loves me. He's got me. Do we become the antinomians who give up on following the law and become all grace? No. Those who are called and beloved and kept are active participants, willing participants in keeping ourselves unstained from the world. We let the law be our guide in righteousness. And as Jude goes on to say, He commands his hearers to keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for eternal life, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And how in the world are we going to be able to keep doing this? It's not on our power. It's because of the love and the call and the protection of our God who loved us first. Now we look briefly at verse 2, where Jude tells us the benefits of the gospel for those who are in Christ. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. It's important to note that this is a movement from God to man. 
And it is a multiplication of mercy and peace and love. It's not a small ration. This is a multiplication that God gives to his people. It says, to you is what Jude says. That is those who are called, beloved, and kept. This is to believers, to Christians. Listen to these benefits. These are promises for God's covenant people. Mercy. God gives to you mercy, loving kindness, pity, concern. Yes, we are to be merciful toward others, but only we can only do that because we have received the multiplied mercy that he pours to us. Titus 3 says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We deserve to die. Our sins have earned us a penalty of damnation. But God multiplies mercy to his people. And peace. He multiplies peace. Now, when you hear peace, you may be thinking of a few different types of peace. First of all, there's this this, uh, humans being at peace with one another. World peace, that concept. Uh, there's also uh, this, this inner peace, this sense of calm uh, that, that people can find. Uh, the only true peace comes from confidence in God. But I think what, what Jude's really getting at is this third meaning of peace. This is peace with God. It is an objective reality that is tied to salvation. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 5. This is a saving peace. We contributed the enmity. We offended him, we sinned against him, and yet he offers peace, which saves. This is not peace we've conjured up. No, we've only provoked God. Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. What a merciful God to be at peace with his people. God multiplies peace to you. And Jude says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is the only greeting in the New Testament that includes love. And this is a reminder of the underpinning, the foundation. This whole greeting is a gospel greeting, and there is no gospel without the foundation of the love of God. These people are beloved, and it doesn't just stop there. Once you get in, God doesn't stop loving you. It's not like his love stops increasing. Once that you've got your free pass to heaven, God's love does not stop. This is a love multiplied to believers, even today. Yes, it's a pardoning love by which we are justified, but it is a continuing love by which we are pardoned when we falter again today and tomorrow and the next day. When we rebel again, when our hearts are ugly, when our souls are in distress, we can always say it is well with my soul. Because we have a God who loves us. And that love covers a multitude of sins. This is God's embrace when you feel dirty from your sin. This is a grand welcome when you know you are nobody of value. This is compassion and care and warmth toward us rebels. And it is only from a position of being loved and humbly receiving God's love for his people that we can then love others. Only when we have been loved can we love our enemies. Can we love those who are offended us just like we've done to God. 
and cover a multitude of their sins against us. When you wonder who in the world would ever want to be with you. When you think you are the ugliest, meanest, laziest, heaviest dead weight to other people. God looks at you and he doesn't just say, I guess I'll put up with you. He looks at you and says, I love you. And he multiplies love to his people forever. You can look at verses 3 and 4 again and see what Jude is really going to jump into. We Christians who are loved and called and kept are in a messy world with perversions, with difficulties. But there's one thing that we can hold on fast. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the face of perversion that the world has created, and we pervert the grace of God in the face of sensuality and the denial of Jesus Christ, Christians are still called, beloved, and kept. Even when churches are replacing the message of Jesus with a message of convenience and indulgence and self-improvement and wealth, Christians are still called, beloved, and kept. In the face of a public whose whims and dreams upend authority and blaspheme the glorious ones of God, Christians are still called, beloved, and kept. In the face of a cultural cognition that is tossed to and fro by the next thing, unable to stand on any reliable foundation, Christians have that foundation because they are called, beloved, and kept. In a world where sexuality and gender are glorified as the final definition of a person, remember, Christians, you are first and foremost called, beloved, and kept. In the face of scoffers who follow their own ungodly passions and they cause divisions, we are called, beloved, and kept. And even when you have rebelled against the loving, merciful God of peace, by prioritizing your kingdom first, by building your house before you build his, repent and find yourself again as the one who has been called, beloved, and kept. And in all this, God multiplies mercy, peace, and love to his people. What a comfort. We can go forth with that confidence. But one warning to those who have not put their faith in Christ. There is no peace with God. There is no mercy for those who are facing the punishment of their sins alone without Christ. There is only eternal damnation. If you are not called beloved and kept, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, abandon all of your self-seeking, abandon all of your worldly pursuits, and look to the God who loved and sent his son, the son who came and died to pay the penalty for your sin and to take the curse of sin in his body on the tree, who rose from the dead and who promises by his spirit to keep for an eternal glory all those who trust in him, trust in him alone. Find life in his word alone. Let's pray. Lord, your word is powerful. Your gospel is strong. We have no firmer foundation than this gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are changed because of what Jesus has done. Thank you for calling us, for awakening us by your spirit, for loving us since before the foundation of the world and for keeping us to the end where we await your glorification, and our reign with you. It's in the precious name of Jesus, by his spirit we pray. Amen.